and welcome back. There will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 21 on the top 100 of AFI's list, 1974's Chinatown. Chinatown. Ethan, have you seen Chinatown before this? I have not. I had not either. I had heard a little bit about it. I think while doing some of the research for some of our other noir films, this one came up because there was the contention that it was or wasn't a noir film because it was in color. Mm, Yes. And I think we'll discuss that probably in our three questions. Yes, I think so. Before we get to that, maybe we should jump into a plot synopsis. Yes. Uh, And this one, there's a lot here. So... Chinatown is the story of Private Eye, J.J. Giddis, and Evelyn Mulray, who hires J.J. to investigate her husband, Hollis Mulray. At the start of the film, Evelyn suspects her husband of infidelity. J.J. follows him, learning about how he refuses to help build a reservoir that he worries will be unsafe. Eventually, J.J. gets photographs of him with a younger woman. The photos are published in the paper the next day, and a woman arrives at J.J.'s office explaining that she is actually the real Evelyn and the first woman was part of a setup. JJ realizes that he and Hollis were both set up and before he can question Hollis the man is found dead, drowned in one of the reservoirs. The real Evelyn hires JJ and he discovers that though California is in the middle of a drought, large amounts of water are being dumped from reservoirs around LA each night. JJ is attacked by one of the water department's henchmen who slashes his nose and warns him to stay away. Shortly after, the imposter Evelyn calls JJ and instructs him to read the obituaries in the paper. JJ discovers that Hollis was the partner of Noah Cross, Evelyn's father, and that the two were in charge of the water supply and made a whole bunch of money off it. Cross and JJ meet, and Cross offers double Evelyn's pay for JJ to find Hollis's mistress. JJ is later attacked by farmers who mistake him for a water department man on their property, as they indicate that the water department is ruining their land and their crops, poisoning their water, that sort of thing. JJ realizes that the water department is drying up land to be able to buy it at cheaper prices and putting the cheap land in the name of dead seniors. Evelyn and JJ investigate the retirement home that the quote-unquote wealthy landowners are at and are again attacked by water department henchmen, but they escape. JJ and Evelyn hide out at her house and sleep together. In the middle of the night, Evelyn receives a phone call and has to leave. JJ follows her and discovers her at the house of the mistress. Evelyn claims that the mistress, named Catherine, is her sister. The following day, JJ gets a phone call from a man claiming to call on behalf of the fake Evelyn from all the way at the beginning. When he investigates, he discovers her dead in her home, but the police are waiting for him. They tell him Hollis had salt water in his lungs, indicating he was not killed in the reservoir. The police suspect that Evelyn killed him and dumped his body there, but JJ defends her. At her house, he finds servants packing her items and finds that in the pond, in the backyard, it is of salt water. He also recovers glasses from the pond, like a set of glasses. Assuming they are Hollis's, he meets Evelyn at her sister's house and accuses her of murder. She explains that the mistress Catherine is both her sister and her daughter, because her father raped her, and tells JJ that the glasses are not Hollis's because he did not wear bifocals. JJ then arranges for the two women to flee to Mexico with a meeting point at Evelyn's butler's house in Chinatown, where he used to work. He meets 
cross and accuses him of murder. They head to Chinatown with JJ at gunpoint and find that JJ's men, who he sent there to hatch his plan to get the women to Mexico, have been caught by the police. And they, of course, threaten J.J. with a bunch of crimes. J.J. tries to explain, but Evelyn shoots her father in the arm and speeds away with her sister-slash-daughter. The police shoot after her, eventually shooting her in the head and killing her. And Catherine is taken away by her father-slash-grandfather, whatever he is. The police let J.J. go, and one of his men tells him to forget it. It's Chinatown. There's a lot of openness in this movie in terms of lacking closure uh, oh yeah uh in in fact i would say that this film uh d- gives us no closure at all and the villain gets away with it the villain gets away with it certainly so there's no closure in the overarching plot well i wouldn't say there's no closure in general i think we learn finally what chinatown means to get us by the end of the film through all of its constant allusion to it, right? Chinatown becomes this evocative phrase that we don't really know what to do with until the end of the film when we really see that at some point, J.J. Geddes must have been in a similar situation. Something went terribly wrong, and he basically just brushed under the rug That same in a similar way that Lou does mm-hmm. at the end of this film, and he is shoved out again. And so we kind of get more context for what Chinatown might have meant to him initially. Yeah. So we know more about his character by the end of the film. Yeah. But you're right. We don't know a lot of things. Like, I mean, it seems likely that Cross killed Mulray, but we never get a confession like you might expect or something. We don't know who killed Iris Sessions. It seems like Giddis implies that the cops did it and are trying to lure him in because the cops are fully in the pocket of cross like Evelyn Mulray indicates in the film, but we don't know who to believe there. So there's a lot of, I guess openness is the term I keep going back to because that's kind of a postmodern term, right? The idea that we aren't closing down the text. It's open to interpretation a lot of ways because Mm -hmm. there's really no solid through line that wraps it all up. So it is a noir, but it doesn't fall in the same way we'd expect a noir film to go. Mm-hmm. No one gives a confession at the end. No one gets wrapped up and booked for the crime. Everything mm-hmm. just fades into the background. And, and that's it. You're stuck with it. Deal with it. It's Chinatown, Matt. Well, it's just Chinatown. It's just Chinatown. Which is to say that, you know, the, these people don't matter, I think. is Right? I mean, that's the... That's the takeaway I get here is that, you know, these are these are people that aren't important. I think that's one way to think about it. But I think another way to think about it is it's just this bed of chaos in a way that is also mostly derived from the corruption, the systemic corruption from cross to the police to everyone down the line. So I think it shows that, hey, look, this is just a fight you can't win. So I think his partners say that to him get him off the scene saying like, you can't beat the Lieutenant on this. You can't beat cross on this because they're all a part of the same cohort effectively. Mm-hmm. That's what I take it to be because when JJ Giddis at the end says to Lou as little as possible after they see Evelyn's corpse, after mm-hmm. she's been shot by Loach in the back of the head, 
Lou gets really angry at that because it's the path of least resistance, right? They are falling down to corruption rather than standing up to it. And now Giddis is able to turn that back on them because he's no longer part of that. That's why he left Chinatown. That's why he left the police force. And that's why he's a private investigator, ostensibly. Yeah, and and there is no justice, right? Well, I guess there is no justice, especially if you have enough money. Yeah, and I think that's actually where I want to turn to our pivotal scene and later our thesis. So typically I would pick a much earlier pivotal scene. I think there are so many that would go very well for this. There's a lot of really good scenes where Nicholson lays out the current stakes in a way that's, I I don't know, I, I I tend to enjoy but this I picked, the scene, is where he and Cross, so Giddis and Cross, are at the showdown right prior to the climax at Evelyn Mulray's house next to the pond in the backyard. So let's take a listen to that, and yeah. then we'll be right back. Oh, there you are. Well, you don't look too much the worse for wear, Mr. Gitz, I must say. Uh, where's the girl? I've got her. Is she all right? She's fine. Well... Where is she? With her mother. Got something I'd like to show you, Mr. Cross. What is it? An obituary column. Can you see all right in this light? I guess I can manage. What does it mean? That you killed Hollis Mulray right here in that pond you drowned him and you left these coroner's report shows Mulray had salt water in his lungs Hollis was always fascinated by tide pools you know what he used to say I haven't the faintest idea that's where life begins Slews, tide pools. When we first come out here, he figured if you dumped water into the desert sand and let it percolate down to the bedrock, it'd stay there instead of evaporate the way it does in most reservoirs. You only lose 20% instead of 70 or 80. He made this city. And that's what you were going to do in the valley. It's what I am doing. If the bond issue passes Tuesday, there'll be $8 million to build an aqueduct and a reservoir. I'm doing it. Gonna be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not gonna get. Oh, that's all taken care of. See, Mr. Gitz, either you bring the water to L.A. or you bring L.A. to the water. How are you gonna do that? By incorporating the valley into the city. Simple as that. How much are you worth? I've no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Now, where's the girl? I want the only daughter I've got left. You found out Evelyn was lost to me a long time ago. Who do you blame for that, her? I don't blame myself. See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that the right time and the right place, they're capable of anything. Claude, take those glasses from me, will you? Not worth it, Mr. Gates. 
really not worth it. There's the girl. The reason I chose this scene is, well, it informs my thesis, but I also think it informs a lot about the film, where Giddis just asked Conway the question, how much are you worth? And he says, oh, I don't know. How much do you want, right? Cross right. thinks he can still buy Giddis. He says, no, 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 I just want to know how much, more than $10 million? He says, oh, of course, goodness, yeah. yeah. And Giddis says, well, then what more could you buy? How much more well-fed could you be? And Cross's answer is that he's not looking to buy anything or be more well-fed. He's trying to buy the future. And that's such a scary idea, particularly for a contemporary culture yeah. where you have the extravagantly wealthy just continuing to eat up all that's around them. Right. And yeah. for the film, it's it's Catherine. Catherine's the future, right? She is the goal mm. for Cross in this. For whatever purpose, we're not sure. Maybe a repeat of what happened to Evelyn. Yeah, I think I think that the obvious implication is that he's going to rape her and and keep going. Well, I think that's something that I wanted to bring up as well, because Evelyn indicates that she was not raped by her father, that she was somehow complicit in this, though she was 15, so it is statutory rape no matter what. She seems to... Did Giddis she? Asked if, yeah, Giddis asked, did, did he rape you? And she shakes her head, no. Well, I mean... I don't know what you mean, I mean. it's we're, We have to take her at her own word here. Yes, we take her at her own word, but, like, it's set in 30, what, 7? Like, she, that, what, what else is she going to say? I mean, that's that's the sort of thing. I feel like there, there's a time period that they're playing into where, of course, she's going to she's gonna say, no, I wasn't raped, right? But, you know, this is a time period that it's set in where they would say, uh, you know, she asked for it or something like that. And I think this is perhaps the time to point out that this film is made by uh, a notorious child rapist. <laughs> yes. And the last movie he made before th- that came out, uh, if I if I'm right, or at least it was the, it was uh, the the news came out like two or three years later. Yeah, and we can read into that as much as you want. How much art impersonates reality in this case, but I think it simplifies the movie to say that she was just raped because that is why she has been. I mean, that's part of her motivation. That's why she's trying to cover all this up and not let anyone know about. Her sister daughter is because she feels in a way implicated in it, right? She feels complicit in this. Yeah, but I think that I think we, we absolutely can read that her understanding of being uh, complicit in like you know old fashioned thirties like you know that's American culture. I mean, we also this is also a movie where Jack Nicholson beats the shit out of her at the end. You know what I mean? Like. He slaps the fuck out of her and throws her against a wall, and he's the good guy, right? Like, I think that the film, you know, I don't know that we can take her totally at her word. I think that, like, if, if your dad rapes you, you're even if you think you're implicated in that, you're not. You got raped by your dad, you know? Yeah, but there you go again saying rape. Like, I think you're being a little too narrow in your definition here, right? Because I think that really informs her character, by saying she had some part in this, right? There was some choice. Yeah, she might think that, but of course she doesn't. He, She doesn't have any choice. He owns everybody. He's got so much money he can sweep it all under the rug. Right, and that's what the film is telling us at the end. Yeah, that, you know, money, uh, yeah, I think money, money talks and everything else walks, you know? Like, that's it. You were mentioning that J.J. Giddis, Jack Nicholson character, 
slaps the crap out of Faye Dunaway's character, Evelyn. Mm-hmm. And that is an actual, that's the take, that's him actually physically hitting her, Jack Nicholson is, because Faye Dunaway just wasn't, for some reason, feeling it with the fake slap. So she just got angry and said, you need to hit me. And so those are real hits. So that was that was a little bit hard, but that uh, was the least of the sort of onset chaos between Faye Dunaway and mostly Polanski. Is that true? Yeah, there's a lot of craziness going back and forth. A lot of rumors. Um, so I don't know if I want to just monger some more, but at the very <laughs> least, I know that those hits were real from Nicholson. Ooh, yeah, I don't like that. But I also feel uncomfortable calling Giddis the good guy because yeah, fair. He is in very typical, and I say typical in a way that I don't mean to be derogatory. Typical in the '60s, '70s, postmodern, open to interpretation, anti-hero type mode, where he is our protagonist absolutely because we follow him. Cinematography is very much over his shoulder or through his eyes at all times. Yeah, all, yeah, he's in every scene. So we're very much aligned to him, but he's not a great guy. And I mean, no. that's why you go out and cast Nicholson because he is right. the sleazy but also charming guy. He plays that that line so well. I think it's, yeah. it's brilliant to have him play that character. I think you're right. I think that Nicholson, at the, particularly at this point in, in his career, right, uh, is almost like you you go you, you when you know he's in the movie you know that he's not but he's not a knight in shining armor by any stretch of the imagination and i think even just casting him is but but yeah i think that like he you you sort of know what you're getting at, with jack nicholson right and i think that you're right that casting him i mean it's like harrison ford or something you cast harrison ford and he's always like maybe a little morally gray but like a but a but a good guy, you know, and it's the same sort, you know. Yeah, whereas Harrison Ford is more like slightly roguish, whereas yes. Nicholson is often a bad person that comes off looking better than other bad people. Yeah. And I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. explicitly what the film wants to tell us in this case, where J.J. Geddes is the only one to really understand the implications of all that's transpired mm-hmm. because he's gone through it all. And we maybe see that this could lead either to some kind of good-natured reform where he's trying to do better and actually strive for justice or just complete moral collapse because the rest of the world around him has experienced moral collapse yeah it's very 1970s it this feels even though it's it's you know sort of neo-noir um and it's set in the 30s it really feels like it's from the 70s yeah absolutely it's one of those 60s and 70s films resist closure very open to bleakness right embraces the tragic ending but think about that time we've talked often on this podcast about this very time frame and the topic itself it's not a happy time and that's why we get films like this and i think they're much more meaningful because we can also identify with them today yeah i yeah and yeah because it is it's a sort of nihilistic ending there none of this means anything it's just going to keep happening Maybe there's possibility for redemption, but we're not going to see it. Uh, mm-hmm. And the villain wins. I mean, the villain gets to take that girl away, to take his his like daughter away and and rape her. Right. So maybe this is a good time to turn to our three questions. Yeah. Before we do that, though, let's talk about anchor. Sure. So on to three questions. Yes. What do we owe to this film? 
this is kind of a hard one. I well, maybe not. I mean, this I feel like this is this is pretty firmly like neo noir, right? Because it is in color, and it like you said, it it does move away from the uh, sorts of you know neat neater endings that we've gotten in other noir films yes. that we've seen. Um, but it definitely is like using that. It, it's it, it's repurposing that genre for you know the seventies, the early seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that like a lot of the other movies that are sort of neo noir that come after uh, owe a lot to that, right? I mean, I think even something like this ridiculous is that Detective Pikachu movie that we watched <sighs> the other day probably owes a little bit to this. Um, but I think about something like Minority Report, which is you know uh, a really sort of similar film except set in the future that we think of as a neo noir, or at least I think of as a neo noir. I think that people, a lot of people do. Sure. I would agree with you and say something like Fargo is not possible without this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right on the money about this is in line with a lot of what the noir does. Tight narrative, which I'm on record for a couple times now with our noir films that (laughs) I've really enjoyed these noir films because they have such a tight structure. Narratively speaking, everything gets wrapped up by the end. Now, this film continues that. Except for it explodes it all at the end, and I'm and I'm not dissatisfied, right? Because the film has earned its ability to say, "Here are all the lines being followed. Everything is happening reasonably." But then some threads just spin off or burn out because that's this bleak landscape that we're dealing with here, and that's the kind of forces that Giddis is up against. Yeah, and I think that when we think about, because this is you know the noir is almost always some sort of mystery sort of plot right we can throw that under the the umbrella of of the mystery genre and i do think that this film unlike maybe some of the others and i'm not 100 percent sure i'd have to i'd have to look back at them but uh this film doesn't give us the viewer as the, the opportunity to to solve the mystery we we get as many i mean we get all the pieces that jack nicholson does which is to say some that go, like you said, some that go nowhere, some that do go somewhere. And, and so we don't, we, just as he does, we don't have all the pieces to figure it out. And I think that that's an important part of a mystery genre in, or the mystery genre in general, right? Is that a good, a lot of these good mysteries give the viewer or the reader or whoever, the consumer, uh, all of the pieces to figure it out themselves. And the ones that are not maybe as good, you know, don't, and so it doesn't feel as earned, right? But but I think this isn't this isn't trying to give us a, a bow at the end. It's trying to say, you know, it's giving us a bleak outlook. I mean, this and again, this is Polanski after his wife is dead. You know, I mean, the, the, all the the Manson murders and that, and and I mean, we know Polan. I mean, Polanski is an international criminal, so like he's not a good dude either. You know. But I think a good moment that represents what you're talking about with the clues is that very early on when Giddis goes to Mulray's house he sees the glasses in the mm-hmm. water now you yes. can't tell their glasses at the time I thought hey is that a ring or is that that's some what kind I, of thought. I thought it was a brooch or something but he's about to fish it out when Faye Dunaway walks in right. so he forgets about it and then so do I right so I'm yeah. also implicated in that that's how close yeah. we are linked to our protagonist is that I never thought about it again Till he returned to the pool, I was like, oh, right, there was something in there. And, of course, that's a little bit of serendipity, of course, but I think it increases the tension and makes what's going on in the plot 
you know the mystery aspect of it it fulfills that very nicely yes it's it's a very sort of uh you know like theater expressionism which is to say like we i mean it's not full-blown expressionism where like you know it everything is you know really the sort of the fantasy of the of the protagonist or whatever but we do get a really subjective experience and i and i agree with you like you see that the, the thing in the water at the beginning and then we too forget it just as his character does yeah exactly and i can also say even though all the pieces were there with the daughter sister when you see hollis mulray with her earlier and the mm-hmm. fact that evelyn calls her her sister mm-hmm. i still still didn't guess it right so that all the pieces are there and yet they're inaccessible to me because yeah. i like the protagonist don't hold all the cards mm-hmm. so let's jump to our second question sure does this film hold up i i, I think so i think very visually it's fantastic uh and i think it's extremely well cast i mean we listen faye dunaway and Nicholson, come on, man. I think, though, this is where we run into the problem of Roman Polanski, right? Is that, like, just like someone like Tarantino or Weinstein or whatever, how do we watch? I mean, I don't know. My sister and I watched this film together, and the whole time she was like, this is a movie by a child rapist about a rapist that wins. And it feels gross. But he didn't (laughs) write the film. Yes, he didn't write it. Right, of course. So I, I want to be careful we're not just trying to jam these things together because there is a distinction. Yes. He directed we, it, and sometimes directors write the films, but in this case he didn't. Yes, and and we don't want I don't want to make the intentional fallacy and all of that, but it's it's a it, you know, it's a hard circle to square for me. Just in the same way that like I love the film Death Proof, right? Tarantino's Death Proof and there's a big argument to be made that like Two years after he just about killed his muse in a car, he writes a movie about a man who kills one with a car and then is punished for it, right? And, of course, he isn't punished for it, but, yeah, I I, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel good. Sure. I mean, that's entirely valid. I would agree that this colors people's viewing of the film. I didn't know it was a Roman Polanski film until the credits rolled up at the beginning of the film, so I saw yeah. that. It's immediately disheartened, but... I really enjoy the film, and so that's something where I am trying to distance it in the same way I really enjoy Dustin Hoffman, so I'm trying to distance the art from the person, but we can't condone the people. But is this a case where we need to cancel all of Roman Plansky's films, like R. Kelly's songs all have been canceled? Is that something? Well, I think this is this is a great question to ask, and I think that for me, at the very end of the day, there, I think there is a point, like with Tarantino, all, all of the sort of pre-Tarantino being a scuzz films, I, I, I don't feel necessarily bad about. Like, I certainly don't feel bad about Pulp Fiction. I certainly don't feel bad about Reservoir Dogs. And I think with Roman Polanski, I don't necessarily feel bad about Rosemary's Baby or, or this film. But I think that like a film like this does give us a little bit of weird insight into you know artists and how they choose things and and all that so i don't know that like i'm not going to go see a new roman polanski movie i'll tell you that but this is an important movie right like this movie is i think influential it's very high on this list it it informs a lot of neo-noir that comes after it so should we not watch it i won't go that far should we watch it with you know some context i think yes you know what i mean 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So we'll leave it to our listener to decide that. I want to leave that to a side for a second. Talk yeah, about yeah. the film being in color. Yes. Because this is a big issue for a lot of people. I do not care whether a noir is in black and white I agree. or it's in color. If it's well done, it's well done. I also think the 1960s, 70s type dinge and graininess that yes, this film has that. is really useful for it, just in the same way that all the dark blacks and shadow in the original noirs were very useful to those films as well. Yeah. So I think it's a different texture, but I think still a noir. So come at me. I agree. You know, I, I do. I think that the the being in color or being in black and white does not make the noir although my sister did point out i was like well it's a you know it's a noir film and she's like no it's not <laughs> no because it's in color um but but i agree i think it's every in every other way you know it, it's repurposing the genre it's an evolution of the genre so i i agree with you i don't think it needs to be in color at all or it doesn't need to be in black and white that is yeah so let's move to our third and final question do we care about this film yes i think so but for me that is but like i've said a little bit earlier i think that we really have to color i that's my little ironic uh, thing there um i think we have to color our reading a little bit with the fact that like two years later roman polanski is you know the, it is convicted of raping a young girl i think that it and the rapist wins and it fe- it just feels it, I think it undermines some – well, maybe not. Maybe it actually punctuates the, the the takeaway from this story that people get away with this shit. And if you have enough money, you get away with it because that's what happened to Roman Polanski, right? He gets away with it. This is something I was going to bring up in a different context, not our artist or director in this case. Yeah. But contemporary politics feel very yes. similar to what's going on with mm-hmm. the cross situation. So I saw this and thought, man, this really speaks to our contemporary moment. In a lot of ways, that other 60s, 70s films have spoken to our contemporary moment as well. So I think in addition to it holding up, I think we have to care about it because these same things are happening and keep happening. Yeah. And I think that means we need to look a little closer at the world around us. Yeah, I think it does kind of, you know, as you're right, that's a theme that we've seen in a lot of these late 60s through the whole, you know, decade of the 70s. and I think that these films sort of called called out to us and said, you know, fix this shit, be or not even fix it, but just be aware of it. And I think you know, it with the sort of like boom and you know the sort of greed is good '80s that show up and the you know the the '90s that are you know uh, sort of I mean we're not we we move out of a recession right we move into mm-hmm. like you know so. I think there's a way that that gets kind of swept away, swept under the rug or, or just sort of pushed to the side. And we are in a point now uh, politically um, and really as an American culture, right. Of, of having to address all of this again, that if you have enough money, you can get away with whatever you want. You can even become the president of the United States. If you're, even if you're unqualified, but you have enough money and you can, you know, make people do what you want. Well, I think that's a good enough place to leave it as any. <laughs> we will be back next week for our bonus content, our super secret bonus content stuff on yes. Patreon or yes. Patrons of the Arts only. Let's go ahead and announce that now. Let's let's do Minority Report. Let, yeah, that sounds great. And then we'll return 
on the AFI two weeks from then. That will be number 20 on the list, 1946's It's a Wonderful Life. Ooh, with uh, one of our uh, returning actors. Hey, it's, uh, it's me. Fuck, what's his name? <laughs> <laughs> wow. 80% of the joke doesn't stick the landing. Damn it. James, I didn't... James Stewart. <laughs> James Stewart. Hey, it's me, James Stewart. Hi. Hi. There's a fantastic... I'm just going to throw a little plug out here. There's a fantastic... Uh, episode of Conan O'Brien needs a friend with Dana Carvey, and he does a Jimmy Stewart impression. Um, and it's it's a little racy. It's really funny. Go listen to that episode. It's funny. <laughs> You're welcome, Conan. Yeah, Conan really needing our plugs here. <laughs> so that'll do it for us. But until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. and I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Forget it. It's just spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.